1: What is macroeconomics and how has this developed since the crash? How should we think about globalisation? An especially pertinent question given the current political climate. And how important are personal relationships and interactions in determining economic performance? All discussed in episode 7 of the Irish Economics Podcast. everybody and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. So today I'm joined by Professor Stephen Kinsella, who is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Limerick. So Stephen does a lot of work assessing the performance of the Irish macroeconomy, applying new methods to hopefully improve the way we tackle old problems. And this ranges, ranges from looking at economic forecasting and how we think about things like globalization and policies of austerity, and even how we think about households and firms interact with each other and what are known as peer effects. So hopefully you can delve deeper into these topics today and understand the implications for Irish and international economy. So maybe the first topic that might be of interest is looking at what you, your work on macroeconomic modelling and you try to look at some of the new approaches in this context and maybe for the non-economists we could start by looking at, well, what exactly is the macroeconomy. Some people might think that this is some sort of jargon. Maybe just try and break that down first, and then say, "Well, why do we need to assess its performance?"
0: So, um, first off, thank you very much for having me. This is a. It's. I'm just. I'm, I'm excited to be here, and and uh, yeah, th- Thanks again for doing this. Um, what is the macroeconomy so essentially the macroeconomy is the sum of the behaviors of everyone in in the economy so all the households all the firms what the government does and um, what people buy and sell from the rest of the world and of course what we invest so um to, and what is invested in us when we think about the macroeconomy when i'm teaching it i often liken it to the human body you know you've got the different sectors that are essentially the organs and flowing around uh, the firms, you know, the households and so forth are is money. And money flows. So almost the first thing we teach in macroeconomics is something called a circular flow model. Um, and it, it, what this is, it's got an explicit biological metaphor behind it. It was in fact invented by a doctor in France um, several hundred years ago. So it's, it's very interesting that um, many of these biological metaphors uh, carry over. So the fundamental thing about macroeconomics is that my expenditure is your income and your income is my expenditure Mm -hmm. so it's fundamentally different from the way we think about the economics of the household and it's fundamentally different from the way we think about um how individual firms or individual sectors do their thing uh it abstracts away from a lot of that or at least in the past it used to abstract away from a lot of that now it's it's really down with the data, but it's history, it's, 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 um, it's at its deepest roots is a concern with counting. Uh, com- the, the, I think the first ever macroeconomic document is uh, something called Verbum Sapienti, a guy called William Petty. So he, he it, is, uh, it means words to the wise. Okay. Um, basically, I think it's only 19 paragraphs. And you have a concern with counting people up, and you have a concern with inflation, you have a concern with unemployment. You know, I think it's from the 1690s. I forget what the exact word, uh, date is. But it's an incredible document. And in then right. all of the major concerns that you will see in 2019 are sitting in that document. Right, okay. Three, 400 years ago. It's an extraordinary piece of uh, writing. Um, I'll send it on to you.
1: Okay. So the, traditionally, I suppose, methods would have been restricted, we would have had pen and paper or Mm -hmm. maybe simple, very simple computing power. And would this have led led to maybe simplifications in the modelling approaches?
0: You've had to, you you essentially begin macroeconomics from counting up who's doing what where. Um, And even that counting process is quite partial. Uh, The technology that existed in the 30s and 40s when they really started thinking carefully about what everyone does in the macroeconomy yeah. was really really limited um, it was limited pretty much to the uk and the us and uh, when it first started and there were actually a number of approaches um uh, to counting up what people did there was something called input output analysis there's something uh, called the national accounts um real sectoral accounts and then flows of funds accounts and Mm. money flows these are all totally different approaches Um, uh, there was a thing in the 50s called activity analysis which has totally fallen by the wayside the history of macroeconomics is really the history of people trying to figure out what the best abstraction is right okay Um, and, and that was true really up until about 10 years ago um so it, as as much as ten years ago, it was completely fine to write down a macro model that had that you essentially assumed that there was one person in it. So this is something called a representative agent model, okay. and that one person was sort of multiplied infinitely, and there were different preferences, whatever. And then they what they did was they this this single individual this this cloned individual did their best to maximize their income or minimize their work or maximize our leisure or whatever it was the problem was mm. subject to a, an intertemporal constraint so the, the the problem the problem you always had was the economy was a bit like a rocket shooting off but it was the mathematics that we used to describe it or it is literally rocket science right okay. it is literally <laughs> rocket science that that, that, that that is used to describe um, how these things take off and and, and, uh, and land and And um, they're really, it's really nice mathematics, actually, Um, but uh, it turns out to have been an an abstraction too far. Right. In the key sense that um, it's an abstraction too far in the key sense that it got us away from something that's really fundamental uh, in the study of the economy, which is the balance sheet.
1: Right. Okay. So this is this is where we come on to maybe the the stocks and flows of 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 money in the economy.
0: Exactly. So I started um, looking at what's called stock flow consistent macroeconomics in two thousand and six. I had just arrived back from um, New York, where I did my PhD, and uh, I was told you're teaching monetary economics, and I said okay. Right. <laughs> What do I do? (laughs) You know, what do I do here? And um, luckily, uh, I I rang my my PhD advisor and I said, what should I do? He said, well, there's this book I've just been sent to review. It's called Monetary Economics. Right. I think it's probably, you know, right down your alley. And I said, "Okay, cool. Send it over to me. So he sent this book over by these two guys, um, Wynne Godley and Marc Lavoie. And uh, this book was unlike anything I'd ever read in macroeconomics. In that it starts off from the data. Okay. It just goes, "Here's the data," and then it says, "Well, we're pretty sure people aren't rational. Yeah. We're pretty sure there are different there are different ways to think about rationality, but we're we're going to assume that people basically do what they do, and we don't. We're not able to see inside them." Yeah, yeah. right. So unlike the representative agent model, which assumes that you know somebody at a, at a psychological level. Yeah, right. This says, "Well, we don't really know anybody." Um, But we can count what they do, so we should probably just look at the data first. So this starts from that counting exercise, right? Okay, that Petty did, and that you know in in in, the 16th century, and then people people were trying to do you know up, up until the 1950s and 60s, and then sort of expanded, and then it just says, well, look, everything that comes from somewhere has to go somewhere. Right. If I buy you a cup of coffee. I get the coffee and the guy who sells me the coffee gets some money. Yeah. The the money has flown out of my account into that into the coffee seller's account and I have got a cup of coffee. Yeah. Right. And it's sort of it's it, it sounds really stupid, right? But at, at at the but it's a really really simple and kind of fundamental thing. Yeah. And then you you can ask yourself questions about well okay where does it go? Can you trace the flow? and there there are there are data sets for doing that. Yeah. Um, and so what I started doing was writing teaching notes about this new way of doing macroeconomics, okay. just for my students, and I taught myself the approach just by having the need to teach them something that wasn't everything is perfect. Yeah. And everybody's maximizing everything, and you know, there's no such thing as a crisis because, of course, when I started teaching this, it was 2007, yeah. and yes, indeed, there was a crisis. So coming back and saying, you know, well, the economy is moving pretty well, and all the text, the previous textbooks were saying things like, well, you know, the economy is doing well. There's been this great moderation. Yeah, all that's nonsense now, right? Yeah. So I wasn't able to teach you that stuff with a with a straight face. Sure. Whereas this yeah. stuff is saying it's absolutely fine to get a balance sheet that's just out of whack. Yeah. You know, of course a firm can become insolvent. So the stock thing has been going really well. Um, so we've got a number of grants. Um, I think we have about 2 million in grants for various postdocs. So lots of people have now done their PhDs and stuff right. in this. Um, and uh, some, lots of software has been written. And what was very interesting was I had a group of, I think... I think it was six postdocs here at one stage in Limerick, and they were doing all these different types of models. Right. So if you admit a plurality of modeling approaches, well, you shouldn't be surprised when lots of different approaches come up. So we ended up doing things that were strict stock flow models. So basically the way you do a stock flow model, unlike, uh, unlike a traditional macro model where you get some... You get some data on capital, you get some data on labor, you get some data on output. Mm-hmm. You try to fit them together and see how they, they go over time. With this, you take very, very large balance sheet, national balance sheet data sets. Uh, for example, we did one for the Bank of England and yeah. um, working with uh, three colleagues from the Bank of England over a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and you know, we one day, like, we printed out the flow of funds of the United Kingdom. Right. And so we're in a room that's like, I don't know, three meters by three meters it was about eight meters long like we just printed it off it went across about six tables right, okay. it was a huge data <laughs> right um and what was fascinating about the experience of working with policymakers was they were kind of saying like this has to be right you know yeah and you're kind of going yeah yeah no it does it has to be right and and that imposing that discipline on the, the real world discipline on us was amazing it was a really interesting experience
1: and then, so the sort of methods you'd have to employ would be a lot more complicated to yeah. take into account all these different complexities. That's right. Complexities. So, that's
0: right. So, so one of the big problems with these models, right, which is still totally unsolved, is uh, you, in order to, to you, you can't write down one or two equations. Yeah. Uh, I think you're, you're talking about 60 or 70 equations, right? Yeah. And each of them has like at least one parameter, yeah. right? So um, in, in, like in modeling terms you're always asking yourself what's the value of that parameter yeah. and what you find really interestingly actually is if you go beyond i think a lot of our training as economists is very much in the household sector yeah. so if i ask you right now like what do you think is the uh, the marginal propensity to consume out of current income right, for, right. in ireland like you've got like if you ask yourself that question for a, for a, for a second yeah. you go it has to be like not point eight, not In other words, like I give you I give you an extra ten euros, you're probably gonna it's spend most of it. Most of it, right? Which is fine. It's completely grand. Now if I ask what is the marginal propensity of a a financial firm in the uh, OFI sector, other financials, right? So this a shadow bank or something. Yeah. What's its marginal propensity to save? You have no intuition of that. Yeah. Right. Whereas with the household sector, you totally have an intuition because it's closer to what your training is. You've seen some econometric data. Nobody's done that stuff. Right. So there's that. The time series data is pretty limited. Like you're talking, it's quarterly data, super noisy. Mm. The best countries in the world, like we got a grant to do one for the Irish economy, totally couldn't do one. Right. Like we just couldn't do it. Just didn't have the data. Literally didn't have the data. uh, we're like, I just have to wait around another 10 years yeah. <laughs> and I'll do the data. <laughs> right. Then I'll do it. It'll be fine. Uh, but at the time, um, in 2011, when got the ground. We just had so, 11 years of data.
1: So you had loads of people taking different approaches. And was it a case of, well, we have to find what's the way to go here. And we don't really know what we were going, Exactly, we want to go down different avenues and see yeah. which one is more successful
0: yeah so we did this sort of let many flowers bloom thing which was really inefficient from a research perspective but was really efficient from an ideas perspective so in terms of research outputs like we got two or three a year uh if we'd just gone everyone will do this one thing we would have had 20 Right. right so so in terms of the production possibilities frontier of research you know um Uh, we were putting out five, six journal articles a year, which for six people is pretty small, right? I mean, that's not a great return on investment. Um, But in terms of the ideas, it was incredibly interesting. Incredibly interesting. So some of the guys realized that because we have this data that's basically at the sectoral level, you know, it's like households and firms, we've kind of nothing underpinning why those households do those things. So a really nice aspect of the other macroeconomics that I was telling you about before is that they actually have a really, really good story about why people are doing things, like individuals. The problem is all those individuals are highly homogenous and they can't do things like default on loans okay or at least they couldn't so i'll come on to that in a minute right. but in 2006 2007 they couldn't so um yeah so we, we, one of the lads started saying well look we clearly need an agent-based model yeah we need to be able to specify the agents in the system at a very very granular level and i was saying yeah okay that, so computationally how difficult is that and they said well We will need a supercomputer.
1: Yeah. It's it's verging on data science. Have you
0: got one? And I said, well, I don't have one. Yeah. But I could get us some money and we could build one. So we built these servers. Right. Something called, um, what are they called? They're called, uh, they're called G, uh, graphic, they're graphical engines. So the graphics card of a computer is the fastest part of it. Typically. Right. And so we wrote the software in order to maximize this graphics card thing. Right. So we had to build these kind of server things, which was a really exciting and slightly terrifying day because I'd spent, you know, a good quarter of the grant on these little black box yokes. Yeah. And if they didn't work, we were screwed. So we put these things together um, and they work great. So we we built this piece of software, uh, which is freely available now. It's a platform um and it's called jmap and basically um it's an agent-based modeler that has a stock flow consistent component on top of it so we we impose the discipline of everything must go somewhere right we have to map the stocks to the flows no problem but then we also impose a further discipline which is that everyone's flows somewhere within the system yeah go somewhere so there you're you're once you've got that modeling set up there you're able to do bank runs. You're able to talk about what happens when firms go out of business. You're able to talk about what happens when some of the agents in the system are a bit crazier than the others, you know, and they're really into investing and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So cool. Really, really cool. Took like two days to run run these things, but they were great. And the graphics that came out of them were just sweet. Yeah, And some really good publications. So, so some of them, so the graphical capability really impressed me. So we got... Papers published in the Journal of Economic Dynamics and Control nice. with people like Joe Stiglitz. He was very interested in the, this approach um, uh, in the accounting organization and society places like that. Um, Cambridge Journal of Economics. So, we were, like it was, it was getting well published. It was really good, um, and then so I got quite interested in the mathematical connections between the graphs that we were producing, right and these the mathematical elements of the stock flow consistent approach, yeah. So, uh, uh so I did a PhD in NUI Galway before, the <laughs> before I went to New York about um, these mathematical approaches, right? Okay. Um, and uh, so shout out to NUI Galway <laughs> uh, for, for um, putting up with both of us for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's really exciting, what was really exciting about that was I was able to take some of the mathematical training that I'd done in Goaway right? Okay, and apply it here. So what what we did was, and this got published in the Journal of Computational Economics. Yeah, was uh, we proved that there's a strict correspondence between every stock flow consistent model and what's called a directed acyclic graph. Right. Okay. Which and so you're able to show that because the money goes from one place to another, the verb "to" is exactly corresponding um to the what's called a vertex what literally moves in that direction so it's super cool and great fun so So great fun
1: so these models then were they you said you're using uh bank like english data yeah was this calibrated to english data or was it at this stage just a sort of a toy model that was
0: oh yeah so so um great question so some of them are toy models where you basically like knock up some data and then just like run some econometrics oh that's another problem with this data with these models by the way econometrics econometrics are super super simple right right because in order to maintain stock flow consistency you know i spend 100 you take in 100 Hmm. what that actually requires is that everything has to stay in nominal terms so you can't like first difference anything Okay. You can't take the log of something. So you have to get you 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 know you're 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 working on these super super complicated models, right? Yeah. Incredibly complicated models, 60, 70, 80 equations. And then you you're putting it through the simplest kind of econometrics you can get your hands on. And so reviewers have quite rightly said, lads, <laughs> Come on you know you're not yeah you're not uh you're not really at the races here with this, and they're completely right the problem is um the problem is godley and Lavois wrote these models they didn't write them in order to have an econometric specification yeah right so empirical stock flow consistent modeling is really still there's still less than uh ten of these done so I've done one for Italy I've done one for um, Australia, which just came out, um, the it completely unoriginally uh, Matilda, we call it the Matilda model. Okay. Yeah. I mean, God, you know. But anyway, we, uh, <laughs> it was an Australian, by the way, who, who came up with that idea. Um, but yeah. Um, and so, the, so these models are interesting, but uh, I I have to say that what they taught me was that y- you have to respect these these things in a system yeah but they also probably taught me that you can only really go so far with these models before you come up against the necessary problem of having to make a reliable forecast with them
1: yeah and then the, the, the tools, uh, then, the the tools
0: then the tools just fall apart yeah um so there is an agent-based approach to this stuff there's an econometric approach to this stuff. There's a kind of a mathematical, Bayesian directed acyclic graph approach to this stuff. And each time we did one, and I must have written twenty of them at this point, like um and everybody from that group has gone on to do one for their own economies. There's one for Denmark, for example, a former PhD student. Right. Another another uh guy who went straight from a postdoc to an associate professorship okay, from good. here. Um, he uh, he's done a few for like Columbia places like that you know so they're they're starting to find their way into policy related discussions yeah but for me as an academic the the modeling framework hasn't evolved at sufficient speed Uh, they're still like mathematically speaking that they're not they're still not dynamically stable for example Okay. Right. Um, I mean, this may be a little bit too in the weeds for the podcast, but there, there, there is a serious problem with um, with pricing. So yeah. you can't. You, you prices have to be relatively stable or in a stable corridor to yeah. get this stuff to work. So it's like I'm really, I'm really interested in the literature, but I feel like at least for the moment, and I'd be refereeing papers on this mm-hmm. kind of all the time. I can't see yet the major methodological innovation because it's, me- it's, it's not a question of the theory. The theory is fine. Yeah. It's not a question of the econometrics because we can't get the data to cohere with the econometrics, right? Yeah. It's a question of what is the methodological innovation that brings us closer to a really nice solution, like that makes a really nice coherent model that has some predictive ability. Um, and, and yeah.
1: But and so you were saying that um, sometimes, re- so basically it seems, these are very novel methods. And when you write up your paper, you send it on and then reviewers look at it and say, well, this isn't what I'm used to looking at. And that can, there can be some pushback there. Do you feel like it, it, it can be difficult to get things out there? In, in that oh, it's sense? definitely
0: difficult. I mean, there's a lot of these papers that are just sitting as working papers, right? Yeah. But what I think... Uh, and while my, my, my co-authors are apt to get a bit down about this, they, you know, you, you, you see, oh, the mainstream are against us. They're not really. They're curious, yeah. right? If we were writing what's called the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, yeah. which they've all seen before, yeah. there's a format to writing these papers. You just knock them up and then you go, here's my little twist. And people go, oh, that's grand or that's not grand. And they move on. With ours, we have to go, there's this thing, right? <laughs> it's really complicated, guys. Here's 10 pages on this. So you kind of have to sweat through it. And so it becomes a very interesting communication challenge. Yeah. And I, I I'm somebody, I think about communicating economics a lot. So I've been um, for a different sort of part of my work. And I've, and I've, I've really kind of just obsessed about how to teach these models and how to really get them over to people's idea uh, uh, into people's minds Um, one of the things I I have thought about doing in the past was doing like an online course you know to show people what this looks like so if you're going if you're going to YouTube like what is Startflow Consistent Economics like you get these just you know Kindly sit through my two-hour lecture where like where I bloviated a whiteboard like that's not what people want you know yeah. they want very short eight-minute here's an example here's some literature here you go yeah. um, there's just only so many hours in the day but yeah. you have to do that communication bit right so it's not that there's this you know closed-mindedness out there they're just people who are very busy sure you know and they've got sixteen papers to review like I think I've got eight to review right now like and they're just going ah oh, come on. You know, yeah. And you just have to get over that hurdle. And that's yeah. a communication challenge as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is interesting. So
1: another thing then that that uh, came to mind was, so you're talking about these sort of new methods applied to macroeconomic modeling and the stock flow, consist- stock flow consistency is one aspect of that. But then I know in this rebuilding macro project that you're working on, it seems to be bringing in a lot of different disciplines like anthropologists and yeah. When people think about economics, they don't think about these sort of people getting involved. They don't. So, so how, do they, how, how does that fit into this whole modelling framework? Is it that we have this ensemble of different viewpoints or do you say, well, this is what they say and we, we plug this in as a parameter into our model or will it be a bit of both? Maybe? Uh,
0: it's a bit of both. So what Rebuilding Macro is in f- six hubs and the hub that I lead is called Can Globalisation Benefit All? Mm. I was very struck in... 2016, uh, at how shocked everyone was by Trump and Brexit and all of that. But I had also had a really profound experience in Ireland having lived through this austerity period. Um, We are sitting in the Kemi Business School uh, in the University of Limerick, um, which had its own austerity. Right. Right. So I I once had a situation um, where... You know, you'd go to the, uh, you'd go to get some stationery, you know, and uh, somebody would take an eraser and cut it in half and give it to you. (laughs) So we lived through this period. We all, you know, we all had our pay cut, all this kind of stuff. So it's an interesting problem in that um, having lived through these crises, Hmm. like I'm aware that some people are made better off by globalisation. And some people are made worse off. I mean, we are Irish, right? Um, we are we are definitely the winners yeah. from this, um, but we do impose losses on others. Right? Mm. And you are not going to. It's a substantial threat, in my view. And this is moving into international political economy rather than macroeconomics, which is a you know a different thing. But it, uh, I it just struck me, having done a lot of reading about it that unless we were able to include into our macro models the fact that um, the family matters, Mm. right? We weren't going to be able to explain certain effects. For example, um, when a large factory leaves um, uh, a town in Vietnam, Mm. its effects are totally different to the same firm leaving a town in India. Right. And the reason is Family structures. Right. Okay. The family structures. And this is very well published, Journal of International Economics, twenty fourteen work, um, by uh, colleagues from Dartmouth. And what they found was just this familial ties were stronger and the social welfare networks were local. Okay. So you were only able to claim the dough in your own area and your family structure was very important to you in India. Whereas in Vietnam People have just dispersed and went off and did their thing. Not that family isn't important in Vietnam. It's just not as strong. It's not a controlling variable. So as a macroeconomist, that tells you family matters. Well, how do you model a family in a macro model? It's really, really hard, right? Or uh, take the the experience of debt. We know colleagues at the Central Bank in Ireland have shown us that, uh, and and they've shown it econometrically, that the experience of excessive indebtedness. So Mm. you're... So it's not that you just owe some money. like You just you owe way more than you'll ever be able to pay back. It actually damages consumption for decades into the future. Now, there's no macroeconomic reason why that's true, right? Yeah, yeah. It, that, that, there's a thing in most macro models. It's called the transversality condition. And basically, you go past this and then you're so, you're so in debt it doesn't matter. You go back to what you were doing before. And it's like, well, no, that, that does matter. So the idea of the globalization benefiting all part is to take some of the stuff that we learned from the INET projects, like there's an agent-based stock flow model in that project. Mm. There's also stuff about the new economics of belonging from a geographer and an anthropologist. Like, what does it mean to belong? Yeah, I was just reading that. That was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there's six different approaches and each of them has to say, like, in order to get the money, they have to show, like, why is this relevant? So, for example, we've got one on global value chains. Yeah. Why are global value chains important? Um, the construction of social identity uh, in Switzerland mm. is about we follow the rules, right? right? Okay. And if you think about the construction of social identity in Ireland, it's something to the effect of like we were oppressed, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, and so, so, and we are not now, uh, <laughs> unless you're like I don't know the Irish rugby team or something. Um, they weren't depressed. They were just beaten. Yeah. But no, the, the the main the main thing there is um, when you when you think about it carefully, you go. Okay, so Swiss people think that we follow the rules. Swiss multinationals, in their supply chains, do not follow the rules. So globalization is value chains. It is just the fact that the iPhone is assembled in China so when, what, and sold everywhere else. So when
1: they don't follow the rules, what what, what does that mean?
0: Swiss social activists get together right. and coalesce and they say you are swiss you are not like us you okay. must change and the swiss companies go yeah no that's fair enough we should change right, right. so you've got a giant multinational company okay. you know bigger than the gdp of ireland altering its behavior and that alters globalization right okay and does that benefit all or not okay. that's, so that's an open that, question So.
1: That uh, changes their behavior down throughout the different su- yes. supply chains where they're operating in different countries. Yes. And therefore that affects the households in these countries. And- yes. Okay, all right.
0: So from a, that's from a geographer's perspective, right? Sure. But then from an anthropological perspective, you go to a place uh, in the south of England mm. where they've seen vast industrializations and they say, well, you know, you know, a macroeconomist will say, well, it's grand, we'll increase taxes on the on the rich people, we'll send you some money, that'll yeah. be great. And what they've shown is like, no, no, no. There are, the, this this idea of of being in a depressed region. Yeah. It's far greater than we it's far greater than any monetary transfer can compensate us for. Yeah. Even if there were a monetary transfer, which by the way there is not. Yeah. Right. There's a brilliant book by a guy called Mike, Michael Trebelko. And it's called dealing with the losers, right. and this book completely changed my mind. Okay, like I would have been a pretty standard, you know, well, just, just tax the done. rich lads, send some money to the poor lads, job done. No, so so no.
1: so so people who are in these depressed regions, they
0: have like there would always be a social
1: argument for some sort of transfer to, to help people who are in bad conditions, but maybe now there's an economic reason because it, it feeds back into your perspective into into your. How you perform at work, things yeah. like that. Yeah, and, yep. and one thing that comes to mind then, alongside that, is you think, see things like maybe areas of Detroit where you know it's depressed now after motor industry left, and this leads to sort of inequality and political activism. And this has you know feedback loops into into the into the economy, and that wouldn't be accounted for traditionally. Exactly.
0: And this is why when we want to think about. Globalisation. We have to use a political economy lens, right? We have to talk about ideas and interests and institutions. Yeah. So again, this comes back a bit like the stock flow macro stuff to teaching. Right. So I'm teaching a course called International Political Economy yeah. in the concert hall in about I don't know half an hour and yeah. at uh, 28 minutes. And um, one of the things that I talk about all the time is uh, these the interaction of ideas interests and institutions it's really hard to get those into a macro model yeah because many macro models abstract away from institutional boundaries now that's starting to happen as well in macro so do you remember the do you remember i was telling you that uh, uh the kind of standard mainstream macro models weren't able to cope with you know bank runs and banking collapses and all that kind of stuff yeah well they are now you know like it's not fair to say That these models aren't evolving; they are, and at a prodigious rate, actually. Yeah. Um. So it's it's not uncommon now to open a an uh, open an uh, uh, an issue of the uh, Journal of Monetary Economics, which is the main macro journal in the world, and see you know a DSGE model where you've got loads and loads of banks going under. Yeah. So the science is moving forward, right? Um, slowly and imperfectly, and whatever, and not as fast as you might like, but it is moving forward. I think that as economics moves to become a more empirical science, the people who have the data and the people who have the, the ability to really, really work with that data, um, they're the people who will generate the most value. Um, and so I've been working on a series of projects with the Central Statistics Office and the Department of Business here about labor market flows. Right. So because we're, it's just really clear, we're, we're becoming an empirical science where where the modeling if you take the modelling to its most extreme, and I've I've gone pretty far. I'm not saying I'm the most extreme at all, but I've gone pretty far down those lines. I've spent a number of years thinking carefully about this stuff. Yeah. You come across you come across the problem that ultimately, when it really comes down to it, you're not dealing with real data. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Uh, you can have all the methodological innovation you want. You can have you can be as fancy econometrically as you like. You're not dealing with real data. You're dealing with aggregated, estimated, interpolated data. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what do you do? Well, you go looking for where there's a big, broad data set of all the things. Right. Um, and so I went looking for that. And uh, uh, I gave up because I couldn't find it. And then <laughs> I was at an INET conference. That's very good. And it came to me. So uh, this um, postdoc met me and um, uh, an extremely brilliant person yeah really brilliant person uh, her name is uh, Neve O'Cleary and she uh, was a postdoc at Harvard and uh, then moved to Oxford and is now moving to UCL as a professor right very good. Uh, skipping all steps in between because she's awesome right she's a network scientist she's a mathematician but she does network stuff and she was saying well look I have this idea for this network model and I know somebody in the CSO could we give this a bit of a lash? And I was like, yes, yes, we can. Yeah, okay. So we have this paper looking at labor flows in the Irish economy. So you leave Potsdam, or no, let's say you leave Trinity and you come to UL. Yeah. Right. Or you leave UL and you go to Dell. Yeah. yeah. Yeah? That's one flow out, right? And then then if I leave Dell and I come to UL, that's flow in. Yeah. So we have the net labor flow.
1: Right. Okay. So it, it, yeah. yeah,
0: at the sectoral level, the okay. but we have it for the entire economy. Okay. Good. Literally the whole thing. So this is macroeconomics, right? Like it goes back to Petty in Petty's Verbum Sapienti. Mm. Yeah. So it's literally counting up all the stuff. It's the entire Irish economy. Yeah. There's no macro model there. There's no stock flow or anything. I mean, there's a. There, it is interesting that the stock flow idea comes in. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, it's stock flow inconsistent. Because yeah. you've got all these workers and they're leaving the country. Yes. So we've got an estimate of how many workers are leaving the country and how many workers are losing their jobs. You right. know? Okay. But anyway, uh, long story short, we're able to use these network models to build a picture of the Irish economy.
2: Okay.
1: And So, by you're, sector. so you're, pl- you're applying these, you're bringing in mathematical techniques yeah. and a lot of, so it's very much interdisciplinary yeah, type yeah, yeah. of approach.
0: It's all, uh, my, my approach to economics is to ask a question, yeah. ask, why is that thing like that? And then try really hard to come up with an answer. And it takes you over these really weird terrains, right? You find yourself sitting in a room talking about Swiss activists, do you know? Right, okay. And you find yourself in rooms talking about the nature of shadow banking and uh, in rooms talking about the legal issues around data sharing. Yeah. and knocking up supercomputer stuff and just spending a lot of your time kind of going like why why am I doing any of this you know like it's 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 a really exciting way to do economics it's just really scattershot yeah but it's all over the shop. if you have this open you know?
1: approach and you take into all these ideas eventually you hit on something that works that helps. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah I
0: mean look 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 it's it's, it's worked in the sense that and um, in the sense that uh, I and the people who work with me are quite happy to come to work every day. Mm. And it's worked in the sense that the, uh, you know, the journals like it. It's worked in the sense that you know, there are central banks and policy places using these models. Mm. Um, and it's worked in the sense that there are still government departments who are interested in this stuff. Mm. To the extent that it gets published in the American Inco- Economic Review with the Journal of Monetary Economics is, is, is to my mind, it's not even a secondary question. I'm far more interested in just having a lash. Like I'm really excited to do this labor flow stuff because we have one of the big questions in Ireland, which is a political economy question, is what is the role of the multinational in Ireland in an era of de-globalization, right? In order to answer that question, you have to know a lot about the multinationals in Ireland. And And to do that using a network approach with labor flow data is a really, really, really interesting question. I have no idea what the answer is
1: One thing I just wanted to mention was you have you have an interesting paper on um, agent based modeling looking at uh, crop adoption're oh, yeah. talking about um, you're talking about families and the importance of families and one, mm. I think one of the results there was that basically if you if you're in a developing country're if you're, if you're trying to in- encourage the adoption of these new technologies and People with good, strong family connections tend to it tends to proliferate a lot lot quicker. So this would the policy implication to me there is that well, if we're going to seed these new uh, technologies, we want to start with people who have good families. Would that Would that be? Yeah. So so this sure. was
0: um, this was a, a paper with uh, my former PhD student, who's now a full professor in China, Hang Zhang, and um, with the late uh, and and uh, dearly missed um, Professor Diane Payne from UCD. She just passed away this year, um, very sadly. And uh, so the idea of this paper was Hang went to China to where he's from and he was talking about the adoption of two different crops and he was just looking at it and it was not rational to do, like no rational crop producer would produce either of these crops um, because of the weather and because of the uncertainty associated with the price and the quantity and so on and so forth. Um, What he showed was that familial structure was the determining variable. So if I was your uncle and I had these seats, I would be far more likely to give the seats to you than to someone else, regardless of whatever price you paid. Yeah. Right, and what, what what was interesting about this was we were able to replicate that behavior which he studied experimentally. So he went out and talked to them and listened to them and surveyed them and so forth. So we got real on the ground data. What we're now calling thick data. We used to be call it we used to call it talking to people, but now yeah, okay. it's thick data. Right. I don't know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's the term and the phrase to me. It's the term <laughs> in the literature. You have to use thick data. So, all right, you heard it here, folks, on the Irish Economics podcast. Thick data. So yeah, it's thick data. So he just w- went talking to people, and then the paper allowed two things. The first was the re- was was, uh, and I think this is chapter three of his thesis. Mm. Maybe chapter four. Um, he the paper shows that experimentally uh, and, and in an agent based way, you yeah. were able to show the propagation of the crops using the familial networks. Yes. You know, so it's a really, really nice paper. And Hang, is, uh, Hang is, is an extraordinary social scientist in that he's somebody who combines really, really deep technical expertise. I mean, you know, so sort of at the computer all day, every day for yeah. months trying to get this thing to work with the ability to go and survey a giant area of rural China. Wow. No bother. You know, and it's those two skill sets are quite, or at least in the past have been in, in, in independent of one another, or at least they haven't been as dependent on one another as you might like, but it was, it was proper economics, like really good economics. He went and had, had the app to people that informed what he was doing. Then he had the, then he, he had the model, yeah. built the model, and then he showed the model back to the people and they were like, yeah, no, that seems like it, that's how it went. Right, so yeah. he, so he was able to kind of find something out about the structure of the society in which he lived mm. that I don't think he'd be able to find using a traditional macro model or even like a network based model, right? Right. Um, even though that model that he builds actually does have some network components in it, um, because I was just really interested to see what, what would happen. Okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, one of the other great privileges <clears throat> of doing this stuff is just working with people who are. Yeah, yeah. They're just excellent. I mean, they're just really, really excellent people. One day I was chatting to him and I was like, what's wrong with you? And he goes, oh, I was just up all night. The lad was nearly dead. He was underneath the the, the table in bits because he'd been up coding all night. Yeah. And I remember doing that myself in my PhD. And I just thought, isn't it wonderful to be around people? I didn't ask him to do this. Like yeah, of course, to he did, do it. did it himself. He just flaked off and did it himself. And it's just... It's just really exciting to do that kind of Yeah, well, of kind of i be
1: passionate about what he does. Yeah. Okay, I, I don't want to hold you on anymore. No worries. Uh, Stephen, thanks a million Love oh, it. it's my a really pleasure. Really interesting chat and yeah, really enjoyed it actually.
0: No, my, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you very much for, for um, uh, listening to me and putting up with me and uh, I wish you every su- success with the uh, podcast going forward. I think it's a brilliant idea.
1: Okay, thanks Stephen, all the best. So there are two, maybe three more episodes left in this first series and I really want to get as many listeners on board as possible over the next couple of weeks. So if you have a friend with an interest in some of the topics discussed, colleagues, if you're at school or college, please, please mention the podcast whenever you get a chance. If you're on social media, a tweet on Twitter or a tag on Instagram always leads to new listeners. So please, if you've enjoyed any of the the episodes so far, let the world know by tagging at irish econ pod on twitter instagram or facebook and help me with giving the podcast a big social media push this week that would be really appreciated uh, so thank you everybody and look forward to talking to you next week